This morning comes with a little bit of a disclaimer, um, and this is a disclaimer. This is a disclaimer that will extend out for a few weeks to a few months. Um, there's going to be some tough subject matter that we cover uh, today and, and in some of those weeks. Um, if you remember from a few weeks back, we we learned about how God's word can confront us, how it can convict us, uh, and so if you encounter something in the scripture today or in any of the weeks to come that confronts you, you have essentially two choices. You can choose to harden yourself to that confrontation. Or you can choose to lean into it and study and learn. Is that really what God's word says? Is that really how that's supposed to apply in my life? And if you need help working through that, please let me know so that we can walk through that together. But that's what I would ask you to do. Lean into it. Don't harden yourself to it. So by way of context, if you remember Paul, the Apostle Paul started the church in Ephesus. Uh, They were saved out of some pretty significant occult practices. And after three or four years there in Ephesus, Paul moved on. And this letter to the Ephesians, that we call Ephesians, Paul wrote to that church after he had been gone for five or six years, just as a a way to encourage them. Um, And he talks in this letter about who we are in Christ, how we are now unified as a people. And we are new creations. And that new life, that new creation requires a new walk. It requires a new way of going about our lives. The way that we had conducted ourselves previously is not okay. And so we are told to take off our old selves and put on our new selves. This has some very practical implications that we looked at a few weeks ago in the end of chapter 4. And chapter 5 begins with some additional specific applications. We're going to pick up in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, So anytime that a passage starts off with therefore, you need to remember that that's halfway through somebody's thought. So he's saying that based on what I just said, This is the application that I'm drawing. And so if you look just at at the verse before, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, because of how God in Christ forgave you, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so in what we do, in in how we behave, we are supposed to be imitating God the same way that a child imitates their parents. Because our children do imitate us, right? I mean, if you sit down in the driver's seat of a car and you put a kid on on your lap, what are they going to do? They're going to grab a hold of the steering wheel and do this. They're going to play with the levers and, you know, beep the horn the same, you know, and maybe yell out the window the same way that they see their parents do, right? I mean, that's, that's what they do. Uh, I can remember as a kid, you know, pretending to shave because that's what I had seen my father do. Um, Pretending to brush their teeth or talk on the phone. I mean, if you hand a kid a banana, if you hand one of my kids a banana, they're going to grab it and they're going to say, hello. Uh, You know, that's they imitate us as their parents. And they do this not because they have to, not because it's some sort of a requirement, but they do it just out of 
love, out of joy, because their whole world is filled with just looking up to us as their parents. Their need for love, their need for nurture, for affection, for food and clothing and shelter are all met really just in in that little world of their family. And so the things that they see their parents doing, they want to do just because of that high regard, that love that they hold their parents in. And so this is the example that Paul is giving us as to how we should be imitating God as beloved children, as children whose entire existence is wrapped up in that joyful, loving relationship with God. And so we should see what God does specifically in Jesus Christ. God made flesh. And we should be so wrapped up with our worship, our adoration, our love of him, that we love to do the things that he did. And so we do that by walking in love. It says in verse 2, as a continuation, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so we imitate God by walking in love, such that the example of love that we are to follow is Jesus Christ himself, who laid down his life on the cross so that through his death and resurrection, we might be reconciled to God. And so this is the standard by which Christians should judge love. We should judge brotherly love against that standard. We should judge our our love for our spouses against that standard. We should judge our parental love against that standard. All of these need to be assessed by that standard that we were given in Christ. And that's a pretty high bar, right? He had all of the right. He had all of the privilege, all of the power. He could have retained those. He could have hung on to those for his own benefit. But instead of seeking his benefit, he sought our benefit. Out of his love for us, he set aside the glory that was due him as God so that we might be able to be reconciled to him, so that those who are far off might be brought near. So it's a love that minimizes the self and builds up the other. He minimized himself. He humbled himself even to the point of death so that we would be able to be raised from our state of sin and death to life in him. And so Paul goes on then to give us another area where this principle of self-effacing, self-sacrificial love is to be applied. And that's the area of human sexuality. So let's read verses 3 through 6 here. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So there's two 
major ideas here uh, that I want to start by looking at. And that is the idea of uh, sexual immorality as being opposed, as being opposite to thanksgiving. And also sexual immorality as being parallel to idolatry. Um, so before we dive into that, um, I'm going to use that term sexual immorality. Uh, the way that that's translated here in the uh, ESV, that word, uh, pornea, uh, it covers all sexual activity of any sort outside of the bounds of marriage. That's how it would have been interpreted when Paul wrote it. Um, and so it's a, it's a very, very broad statement. And Paul broadens it out even further because he says it's not just limited to immoral acts, but also impurity, filthiness, foolish talk, to joke, to kid, to make light of such things. Paul is saying here is the same thing as actually doing them. And Paul takes it even further all the way to covetousness. The thought of coveting is the same as the action. Because this was the teaching of Jesus, remember? In Matthew 5, it says, um, uh, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's not just the act that is a sin, but the thought and the attitude that allows the act as well. And so when I, when I use the term sexual immorality today, I'm using it to cover that full range from an actual illicit affair with somebody that you are not married to all the way to a lustful thought and everything in between. It's an extremely broad brush, and it sets an extremely high bar. But I think that that's intentional. So we have sexual immorality as being opposed to thanksgiving, and sexual immorality as being parallel to idolatry. So these two separate ideas are really just kind of two sides to the same coin. So we have idolatry, which is building up something other than God to the place where it is being worshipped in your life, where it is directing the, where it is providing the direction of your life. So sexual immorality, as, as Paul is defining it here, is idolatry. Because it, because it builds up the satisfaction of a desire to the point that you are, in effect, worshiping it. By allowing the satisfaction of that desire to dictate and motivate your choices. And that position is a position that only God should be occupying in our lives. And so part of the antidote that Paul gives here to that sin is thanksgiving. Which seems odd at first, right? But when we are resting well in who we are in Christ, when we are finding our satisfaction and our contentment, not in what we have or where we are or what we are feeling, but when we find the fullness of our satisfaction in Jesus Christ, then we are able to be truly thankful for what we have and want for nothing else. So what we have when we have Christ is everything. John Piper put it another way. God is most glorified in us. So we give God the most glory when we are most satisfied in him. So as another way of thinking about it, 
and we've 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 used this framework before to look at uh, to look at sins. All forms of sexual immorality violate the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave. Right? He said in Matthew twenty-two that the two greatest commandments are, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind." This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when we look at what Paul is talking about here in the context of the first commandment, when we take what God says about human sexuality and we say, you know, I know, I got a better idea about how this is supposed to work. God, I know that you made me, and I know that you designed human relationships to work in a particular way, but I think that you got it wrong, and I think that it's supposed to work this way instead. So when we attempt to rewrite God's design, we're breaking that first and greatest commandment. We are putting ourselves in the place of God. And that second commandment, to love one another, is also violated by sexual immorality in all of its forms. Because it says that your satisfaction, your personal satisfaction is worth, is worth pulling the other person into your sinful actions. So your pleasure is being ranked as more important than the relationship between your partner and God. How self-centered could we be to say that my satisfaction is more important than the soul of another person. And ultimately, that sort of exploitation, using someone else to satisfy your needs, even if it's done willingly, is an assault on the worth of that person as a creation of God. There's this idea that runs throughout Scripture and there, there's, a, there's a Latin word for it. Did anybody take Latin? Okay, good. You're not going to know when I butcher. Okay, okay I'm going to butcher this Latin. Imago Dei, the image of God. If you remember in creation, God created Adam. And he created Adam and Eve, what? In, him, in his image. In Genesis 9, God is laying out one of the very first rules for his people. And he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And the definition that he gives for that is very interesting. For God made man in his own image. So God obviously views people, mankind, individual people as being worth something, as being worth a lot, as image bearers. And it says in James 3, um, James 3, 9, he's laying out, um, he's laying out uh, um, an argument for how we conduct our speech. Uh, and, and he says, uh, with it being the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so we see both in the Old Testament and in the New that an assault of some sort, in deed or in word, 
on an image bearer of God is by proxy an assault on the one whose image they bear. And so there is great value attached to a person as an image bearer of God. Every single person, regardless of race or gender or age or nationality, has value and worth and dignity as an image bearer. They bear on their bodies and on their souls that divine thumbprint, that divine signature, the sign that points to the one who made them. And sexual immorality devalues that fellow image bearer from your equal to someone who is lower than you, somebody who exists simply to satisfy your desires. It dehumanizes and degrades that person into an object that you are using for your own purposes. So we see the satisfaction of your desires in that instance becomes what you are worshiping rather than God. But the solution is still thanksgiving, acknowledging God as the creator of all things and being thankful to him for what he has given you. Because if we are thankful for what we have, if we are thankful for what God has given us, it makes it difficult or even impossible to covet the things that he has not given us. It makes it difficult to covet the things that he has not given us when we are thankful to him. So if we are to follow the example of Christ in these things, what does that look like? It has to start with a proper understanding of the role of human sexuality. Our culture would take it to, to one of two extremes, basically. They would say that human sexuality is basically unimportant. It's a footnote. Go ahead and have lots of different experiences, and as long as you're safe, just do what makes you feel good, and it's fine. It's not that big a deal. The other extreme would say that your highest calling as a person is to find the most fulfilling expression of your sexuality, and that all other pursuits in your life must be made subject to that. But God's reality is neither extreme, nor does it lie in between the two. But it's in an entirely different direction. An understanding of human sexuality is critical because, and so this, this, this extreme is a little bit right, but it's critical because God created it to be an example of the sort of love that exists between Christ and the church. We're going to talk about this later on in, in chapter 5. Um, but as we come to understand how God designed human relationships to work, we see in that marriage relationship one of the pictures that he painted from the very beginning of his love for us. His self-sacrificing, forgiving covenant love. A love that forgives, a love that builds up, a love that creates new life. But on the other extreme, an understanding of human sexuality is relatively unimportant because our own personal satisfaction, our own fulfillment will never be found in another person. The only true source of fulfillment in this life is Jesus Christ and everything else 
whether it's a spouse, a fiancé, girlfriend, boyfriend, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All of these things promise joy. They promise satisfaction, but by themselves ultimately lead to emptiness and death. So when we follow the example of Christ in this area, we look at human sexuality as a way to point people to God. In our marriages, we point other people to God by being an example of the self-sacrificing love that Christ has for his church. Outside of a marriage relationship, we follow the example of Christ by being content and thankful for who we are and where God has placed us. But in both situations, and this is, this is the most important piece, in both situations we point others to God by finding our satisfaction in Him rather than seeking our satisfaction and fulfillment from other people. The last piece that I want to cover today, um, Paul gives some outcomes of sexual immorality. It says in, uh, in verse 5, that everyone who is sexually immoral has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then in verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And that people will come with empty words, saying that there are no that there is no wrath coming. There are no penalties for these things. And so, regardless of which one of those cultural extremes that they would subscribe to, that's what the world would have you believe. Do what makes you feel good. Do what you need to be to be honest with yourself. We've found ways to manage and mitigate the consequences. There are no more consequences. You have free reign and license to do as you please. But Paul tells us that those reassurances that we get from the world, those reassurances that we get from culture are just empty words. There are consequences for the general direction of our lives. Our walk being oriented towards sin. We see some of the consequences in the world today, right? Not all of the penalty of sin will wait until Judgment Day. We see broken homes, disordered interpersonal relationships, pornography addictions, rape culture. These are all symptoms that we see that tell us that our culture, our world is marred and maimed by sin in this area. And if you talk to people who have been caught up in the walk of the world, they will tell you that in the end, all of the reassurances of this world are just as empty as Paul said that they would be. If you remember back in Ephesians 4, 19, it says uh, that they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So remember, despite the fact that they had given themselves up to sensuality, trying to feel something. They had become calloused and numb and unable to feel anything. But more importantly than the outcomes in this world, 
for walking in sin. There is coming a day when all of mankind will be sorted out, destined for one of two things. Eternal glory in the kingdom of God, known as heaven, or destruction as the price, as the penalty, and the just reward for sin. And Paul tells us here, and it's frightening, that those who walk in these things, those who allow the general direction of their lives to be dictated by sin, have no place in the kingdom. They have no inheritance in the kingdom. And so if they have no place in the kingdom, the only other destination that they can be bound for is destruction. Now, I'm not a fire and brimstone teach, preacher. I'm not going to tell you that you've, if you've ever had a lustful thought, then you're going to hell. But I am going to say that God's word very clearly tells us that sin has consequences. And that if the general direction of your life is oriented towards sin, if you are walking in sin, there are consequences for that, both in this life and in the next. But to know that, to understand that, is only half the story. The other half is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was nailed to a cross. He bled and he died so that we could have forgiveness for those sins. Forgiveness for past, present, and future. Forgiveness for all of the sin that has been, that is, and will be in our lives. And more than dying, he was raised to life so that we too can be raised from being dead in our sins. And we can have life. We can have freedom. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the power of shame. Freedom from the guilt that results from devaluing and demeaning others for our own satisfaction. And so if you're looking at your life and saying, man, I've really messed this up. I haven't been doing this right at all. There's hope. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins. Seek after him and not your own satisfaction. Seek after him and stop seeking after the pleasures of this world. And believe that the price for your sins has been paid in full. There is nothing else that's required of you to have that freedom, to have that life. And so if God has shown you today just how badly you've messed up and you want that grace and you want that mercy, that forgiveness, that new life that comes in Christ, you can have it today. You don't need to wait to become a better person You don't need to wait to get your life figured out. Bring your sin. Bring your darkness. Bring the big mess that you've made of your life. And give up that burden to the one who bears all of our burdens. Takes them willingly upon himself so that we might walk in freedom. Let's pray together. Father, when we open your word, it shows us just how far it is from where we are to where you are, God. 
we see that it's not just about doing the right thing. It's not just about completing the right actions, God. But we are desperate sinners down to the very thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, God. But you love us anyway. In our sin, you have loved us. You have forgiven us. If we will only humble ourselves, turn away from our idolatry of ourselves, from our idolatry of other people, and turn towards you and place our hope in you, Father. I am so grateful for the forgiveness that you have given us, God. I am so grateful for the freedom that is found in you. I love you for that, Father. We love you for that. And we ask that you would continue to work in us, that we might become better imitators of you, that our walk would be straighter, that we wouldn't stumble, that we wouldn't fall, Father, but that you would carry us through and see us through to that day when all of the struggles that we have with sin are removed and sin and death are made no more. Father, we love you. And we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.